This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Are you looking to plant trees as part of your own land regeneration project? If your project is located anywhere in Europe, you can get all the trees that you want to plant, as well as a group of volunteers to help you get them in the ground absolutely free. I've teamed up with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing one tree for every citizen in Europe in the next couple of years. That's 500 million trees, and it's a really ambitious goal and we need your help. So whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleys or hedges to your farm, or are just inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help you make your project happen with free trees and planting support. On top of that, I'll also offer a free project consultation to help get you started with a good plan and to understand how this process works. Just fill out the information through the link on our website or in the bio on our Instagram account, and let's get planting. Hey everybody and welcome back. Now today we're going to start a brand new series. Over the next couple of months we'll be exploring a wide variety of perspectives and knowledge about tree planting, agroforestry, forestry management, and everything to do with woody perennial species. In the last couple of years you've probably seen a ton of articles and promotions about reforestation and tree planting initiatives around the world. Now, many of these are tied to specific climate change mitigation metrics, and it's become more and more apparent just how vital trees are for the health of life on this planet. You may have also seen a lot of critical hit pieces about the inefficacy about many of these same planting projects when they're poorly planned or executed. And as it turns out, you can't just go throwing any old tree in the ground anywhere and hoping that it will either survive, thrive, or have a beneficial impact on the local ecology. The truth is that there's a need for better planting project planning based on essential environmental observations and long-term maintenance plans that are the difference between catchy programs with big numbers attached to them and initiatives that actually grow trees and can transform the health of the environments and the communities where they're grown. There are so many good reasons to integrate trees into the majority of our landscapes and today I'm going to kick off this series by looking at the advantages from an investment perspective of planting profitable agroforestry systems. Now in order to explain the complexities of financial modeling for perennial agriculture systems, I caught up with Harry Green. Now, Harry is the co-founder and chief investment officer for Propagate Ventures, an agroforestry investment platform focused on bridging the capital and the operational needs to integrate tree crops into farmland. They've built agroforestry analytics and project development tools to support farmers in the design, implementation, and management of tree crop systems to increase farm profitability and ecological capacity. Now, by partnering with operational farms and internationally renowned farm designers, they work to implement realistic, functional agroforestry solutions. Propagate is known for working with their partner farms' operational requirements, conventional or organic, to deploy proven agroforestry practices. From ranches to small family farms to large-scale grain operations, they can help to find solutions that fit in for any business type. Now, Harry has also traveled around the world researching agroforestry systems and traditions. And in this episode, we're going to cover a really wide variety of topics. Harry starts by explaining the origins of Propagate Ventures and how he and his partner saw an opportunity to make strong investment cases for tree-based production systems. From there, we go into the barriers that growers and investors face to starting agroforestry systems and some of the solutions to getting past them. We also talk about the tools that their software Overyield makes available when planning the potential profitability of a new agroforestry investment and some of the key considerations that are automated in the platform. Now this talk is also a lot more than the business and financial case for planting trees on farms. We go deep into the practical considerations of planting at different scales, the amendments and assistance that can help trees to survive the first crucial years, the many configurations of tree planting that can complement rather than hinder other farm enterprises, and a whole lot more. So with that out of the way, let's kick off this new series, and I will hand things over to Harry Green. Harry, I would love to hear about how Propagate Ventures came together from the beginning. What are the concepts that brought the team together and turned this into a company? Yeah, of course. So it started out in... 2016. So 
five years ago, almost six years ago now, uh, Jeremy and I and Ethan all got together to answer the question, how can we make trees a bankable asset? How can we link up sources of capital and agroforestry to be able to diversify landscapes, farms, livelihoods, etc.? And so Jeremy and I were introduced to a mutual friend who were doing food redistribution work in Colorado. Uh, Ethan and Jeremy went to university together. And yeah, we all hit it off from there. Uh, had about a year of R&D before we officially incorporated. And then in October of 2017, really got going. Man, and so Propagate also seems to be founded on a strong belief that agroforestry is a smart investment for both the ecology and financially, can you break down some of the advantages that tree-based systems bring? Definitely. Yeah. So first we'll go with income diversification, having more than one yield on a given area uh, is always good to diversify risk out of a system and diverse and also diversify kind of uh, an income certainty in, into the fold. Uh, ecologically, uh, agroforestry will go from say two to eight tons of carbon per acre per year. Um, I always get confused between carbon and CO2, which numbers I'm pulling out, but mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the carbon is a really good indicator species. And then the more species you add, there's that plant biodiversity uh, pushing into insect biodiversity, bird biodiversity, and then farther down the line, things like clean water uh, flowing off the land. Trees absorb a whole lot more runoff than just annuals and just grass alone. And where did you guys approach this topic from? Do either do any of you in the team have a background in farming or is this mostly from a financial investment perspective? It's a good question. It's, it's mostly the latter. Uh, we all went to business school and... The, the passion was really around regenerative agriculture, tree crops, um, living landscapes, we'll say impact investing as well. And there, there are a whole lot of ways to learn farming, whether that's in the field, uh, growing up with it, going and working on farms. Uh, and we, we really have a mix of, of, of that. We've worked on farms through college, post-college, um, and really learned on the ground what it's like to manage landscapes. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. That's been my route into farming as well. I didn't grow up this way, though my parents, like early in their childhood, my mother grew up on a farm, but that disconnect from the lands uh, was enough that I had to find my way back in. And I think it also changes a lot of people's perspective when they don't have uh, sort of a legacy way of farming that they're coming from. And it opens up opportunities. And so with that perspective of business management and looking at this from the financial side, how have you managed to relate to and connect with growers over their priorities as well as the opportunities that you and the team see? It's a really good question. I'll go back to a bit of groundwork um, just in how we think about uh, finance in long-term systems. Um, it was, it was honestly back in 2012, um, finance textbook had a photo of a poplar plantation on the cover. Uh, and I was reading a textbook on agroforestry at the same time. And the, the long-term value of these systems and communicating that with modern financial analysis really clicked. It was, it was an, it was a light bulb. It was an aha moment. And that, that's kind of the academic perspective, but if we look at uh, the returns that agriculture, uh, annual crop farming, uh, commodity livestock have yielded over the past 20 years, it's, it's around 5% and below. So farms are look, farmers, land managers, landowners are looking for alternatives. And things like fruit, timber, tree nuts, uh, those perennial systems that really stack value on the land was appealing to a whole lot of folks. And we, we, we do definitely have a, a product adoption curve. Um, I'm going to try and verbally depict what that looks like. If you think about a bell curve, 
uh, on the on the left tail, you have the innovators uh, and then the early adopters, then the early majority and the late majority are in the middle of the bell curve. And then you have the laggards over on the right. So really that's an order for, of how soon people are going to adopt a new or frankly old practice as far as, as tree crops are concerned. Um, so I'd say we are in getting into the early majority um, of, of who we're working with the, the farther we go along. Amazing. And just like you said there, this is a new old proposition, right? Uh, agroforestry was integrated on farms throughout pretty much all of human history. And it's only in recent decades, mostly since the green revolution mechanization and the growth of agribusiness that tree crops have been pushed out for a number of different reasons. Um, but I, I also have connected with a lot of growers who remember this from when they grew up farming and there's still a connection there. Has that been what you found in the communication with the people that you work with that they remember this or is it still more of a, okay, we're gonna try something new even though there is a history to back it up? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a bit of both. Uh, agroforestry really being that, as you said, the it's the second for oldest form of agriculture. People do have these recollections of hedgerows and orchards and diversified farms. Uh, about, I'd say it was post-World War I, post-World War II, we had the fence row to fence row, Earl Butts, who was the Secretary of Agriculture, um, grain cropping across the Midwest, et cetera. And in terms of calories per acre, that is an excellent way to produce food, but over the long term, you're kind of liquidating your principal uh, and just decreasing the capacity of the land to pr produce all sorts of sustenance. Uh, so folks are really interested in something that yields food, uh, fuel, fiber, et cetera, and at the same time, we'll say sequesters carbon, restores ecosystems, and makes, um, we'll say the the vast ag landscapes of the world a bit more habitable. Indeed. Now, we've gone through a lot of the advantages, the connections and such of agroforestry systems, but what are you finding are the biggest barriers to adoption here? Where do you feel there's still pushback? Yep. So the, the hardest part we've found is access to capital. Uh, farmers can go out and get an operating loan for a row crop or a livestock operation like dairy farming. Uh, they can get a mortgage to, to go and buy land. Tree crops are kind of in between those two categories with a longer time to break even. Uh, and then you don't even get yields. You don't get revenue for a number of years, say three to seven to even 15 to 20 plus years for timber. And looking at accessible equity and debt options for farmers to um, be able to access capital uh, is, is really the, that's the, that's the spark, that's the light bulb that goes off for people. That's a, it's a commonal, commonality between uh, climates, regions, cultures, uh, and, and yeah, everything in that, in, in that fold. Um with those barriers, especially from the financial side, where have you seen some of the opportunities for overcoming them? Is it a matter of implementing a project little by little in chunks that an average grower can afford? Or are there other financial institutions or organizations out there that are increasingly interested in taking on the loans or, you know, helping out the initial investment? Yeah, so financial institutions are very much interested in Climate smart agriculture, um, we'll say it's, you, you can call it carbon negative, uh, regenerative agriculture, all, all the names for it. The, the sticking point that we've found is really understanding when the cash flow occurs and when the cash outlays occur. Um, so in honestly having an understanding of the costs, revenues, yields, labor assumptions, our internal rate of return, net present value, uh, all the things that traditional financial analysis runs through, all of those will say de-risk or increase certainty around these systems. And once 
there's that uh, framework that's readily available, accessible to farmers and uh, financial institutions, then the, then the gears really get turning. Got it. And is that one of the aspects that you're working within the industry to improve? Or is that just something that you are hoping will start to come into place so that more people will come to you for services? Yeah, it, exactly. It, it's definitely the former. Uh, we, we started out doing it all manually uh, with GIS tools, uh, spreadsheets. We actually ran out of cells in Google Sheets. Because oh, uh, right, right now we've upgraded to a software platform. And what was formerly a whole lot more than this, there are still about 1,500 data points per crop per farm. And moving towards a system that, or actually our, our software that enables rapid prototyping of agroforestry over 30 years and looking at all the different um, parameters, aspects of that is really what we're focused on in order to uh, in increase the frequency of, of frequency and scope and breadth of tree planting. Uh, tree planting specifically, it's where we're starting with, but uh, if you look at any long-term enterprise, um, the, the returns on fencing, on ponds, on irrigation, on different livestock systems, um, that, that's all definitely a possibility on, on overyield. Okay, well, so let's start digging deeper into that and the services that you offer through Propagate. Walk me through a situation, let's say a client comes to you, what are some of the initial things that you need to know and the steps in which you walk them through to assess the viability of an enterprise like this? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the, the best way to look at this is through the agrarians platform. I'll review it if uh, any of the listeners aren't, aren't directly familiar. Yeah, well, we're, we're both on that platform, but let's, let's walk the listeners through it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, come back to something a little bit more succinct on, on how we work with landowners uh, to, to de-risk tree crops for them. But really what we're looking at first, um, I'll, I'll just list the layers that we're looking at. It's climate is number one. Number two is geography. Number three is water. Number four is access and roads could be access to markets. Number five is forestry. And then you have buildings, fencing, soil, economy, energy. And that's really a scale of permanence where it goes from most difficult to change to easiest to change. And where we start um, is, is, is climate. And that's not just weather patterns, but it's really the climate of the mind, the, the holistic context of the practitioners, what they want to see out of their farm business, out of their, um, we'll say family unit, lives, livelihoods, et cetera. So really looking into what motivates folks, how they wanna be living their life, how they wanna be working with other people. And that, that's applicable, not just to an individual uh, farm. It, it really goes up to what is a uh, agribusiness wanna do with a certain initiative? What are they really looking to accomplish? And the reason that we, we dive in so much there is because you can plant corn and plant soy the next year, um, but you can't plant apples and then plant peaches in the same spot in two years in a row. So tree crops, it's, they're much more of a commitment and really understanding what makes people tick, what makes a business operate, uh, their mission statement is really key to understanding which crops fit them best. And that could range from berries to tree fruit, to chestnuts, to short rotation timber, uh, to riparian buffers, browse and fodder systems for livestock. It's, it's a huge, um, huge selection, huge array of different perennials that can really fit different contexts. Um, so I'll pause for, um, maybe I'll pause for this. So I'll, I'll, just, I'll just keep going. Uh, from there, that, that's really the, the social systems. Um, I'll just quickly add in, add in that access to capital and, and the whole sure. financial tolerance yeah. um, gamut. But from there, we, we have to look at what the land can support, uh, soil types, slope, et cetera, uh, and then access to water, uh, access to markets and um, yeah, from, from there, we select a few 
preliminary crop types, do some, do some prototyping of what the financials look like and really start this uh, integrated back and forth with folks uh, who, who wanna see tree crops on their land. What we're moving towards with that and what we really what we have right now uh, starting out is a software platform where a user can log in and more and more seamlessly uh, run through all of those different parameters and bit by bit channel in on something that is a really good fit for what they want to do on their land. Yeah, that is a really good description and a succinct walkthrough of the scale of permanence that the Regrarians platform expanded. Um, I use it a lot myself and I am fascinated to see how you've integrated so many of these elements and their planning into the software on Overyield. Like I was mentioning before, some members of your team gave us an introduction into this work at the team at Climate Farmers. And this is the first tool that I've really seen that makes the mapping of key line patterns on a farm so simple. And that's been missing in the space for quite a long time. You have to be pretty tech savvy to use other tools and it can be kind of cumbersome. Whereas this, just putting it onto a landscape very similar to what Google Earth offers and the, the one that I'm most used to working with, does that layout really seamlessly? And then you can basically drag and drop agroforestry configurations onto that, uh, which my goodness, does it save a lot of time and headache. How did you guys start to develop this and when, or I guess, you know, I'm sure this has gone through a number of iterations. What were the first things that you focused on and what are some of the ones that you're planning for the future? Yeah, absolutely. You, you have it right there. It's, it's pretty much draw a line on a map or draw a grid or draw a key line pattern uh, and get financials. Uh, but what, where we started out was doing all of this by hand. So key line patterning on a combination of AutoCAD, QGIS, QGIS and Google Earth. Um, and then coupling those say, row lengths derived from the KML files, et cetera, um, or funneling those through a spreadsheet backend and then manually presenting everything in a software called Notion. It's kind of like an integrated um, live PDF software uh, web platform. And that would take us at least 40 hours per farm um, and we, the, the idea is that we should get that right now, if it's pretty seamless, it might be around eight hours per farm. Um, if, if, um, if the user is, is, is ready to kind of work through all the, all the parameters. And then we're trying to get to the point where you could theoretically design and plant a system in a day. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely working towards economies of scale there. If you can uh, access the turnaround time like that. And having looked at it as well, it's still pretty early in development stages as to where you see it going. I know we've looked into things like uh, intercropping strategies, which at the moment it's not built for, uh, as well as some of the other configurations that you're looking for in climates outside of the ones that you have access to, like in the Hudson Valley and where they were in Kentucky when, it, when we were on the call. Where do you see this developing in the future? Yeah, uh, well, I think two, um, two avenues there. The first one that um, you, you alluded to more or less is alley cropping. So intercropping of, we'll say grain or livestock between rows of trees. And we have a, a back end, we'll call it, um, it's an, an alpha, which is a, basically a pre-software model of that where when you increase the tree density, so trees per hectare, trees per acre, uh, the size of the tree, the canopy width and depth, you get an understanding of how much shade there is in uh, irradiance. So how much light is being intercepted and intercepted, and how much how much is going through the canopy to the ground to grow that understory. And from there, we can look at yields of C3 and C4 grasses. So uh, corn, soy, wheat, uh, cotton, etc., and then along with those cool and warm season grasses and how they respond to shade um, in the different years. So year one is going to have less shade than year 15. 
Um, and then secondarily with livestock, the, the stat that we usually go back to is that for every hot day, beef cattle will gain about 60% more weight per day when they have access to tree shade, or they'll produce say 20% more milk. And that's from uh, studies in Kentucky and Florida. So intercropping and silvopasture is definitely where the system is going uh, in terms of land equivalency ratio and uh, the, the true definition of overyield, which is having more than one yield on a certain area. Um, secondarily, in mostly tropical climates, you have the ABAB in row patterning. So whether that's a combination of breadfruit and coffee or timber trees and cacao um, or yeah, any combination of, of trees like that then yeah a, a way to it, it, it's it's not too far off but it, most of our client base is in temperate climate colder north america where you, you could have um say apples and pears or um di different tree crops interspersed in the same row but pe people aren't really doing that um in cold places but as we move into the tropics we have a project in hawaii uh that that's becoming more and more popular yeah, that makes sense. And also, it's in line with what you were talking about in the beginning about the diversification of income streams for resilience of a business, um, as, as well as for, you know, all the ecological benefits that come with that. And I was wondering, too, what are some of the most important factors to consider in the financial assessment of an agroforestry enterprise? We talked about how this is more or less automated in the software. But what are some of these crucial considerations that can make or break the success of something like this? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll start off high level and then get a bit more granular. Mm -hmm. So if, if we think about an income statement with uh, revenues minus costs equals net income, that, that's the first matrix of information that's really core to understanding the financial health of a system. From there, state, statement of cash flows, balance sheet are derived. Um, the, the two metrics that we look at for the overall returns of the system, those um, yeah, key, key metrics would be the net present value and the internal rate of return. Um, the, the net present value is in, in shorthand, the value of all future net income or future cash flows expressed in today's dollars. So. $100 is worth more to us today than it is in 10 years, but there's a way to phrase $100 that we would receive in 10 years in 2022 dollars. So we look at the net present value um, and then the internal rate of return is basically, if you were to get a mortgage for a tree system, the IRR is the interest rate that the bank would have to charge you to eat up all of your profits. So it's the interest rate where the net present value is zero. Um, that's some finance jargon, but definitely worth looking up on say Investopedia, et cetera, if you're unfamiliar, really good ways to value tree crop systems. The other things that we have to look at are the, the bottlenecks in terms of both cash flow, So access to capital providing, um, pool of capital to actually go and manage a system before it breaks even. And then the labor bottlenecks as well. So how many people you're going to need for a certain activity at a certain time. Yeah. And I can imagine that depending on where a site is located, that could be one of the bigger challenges because of rural depopulation or perhaps even a work, a worker base that is not trained in the types of tasks that are, are needed in an agroforestry system, which let's face it at the moment is still quite rare. Exactly. And, and it, that's a, it's a really good point. Consequently, you have to look at the trade-off between using labor to accomplish a task or mechanizing the whole thing. Yeah. And do you want to have uh, assets on your balance sheet, uh, such as a, uh, some sort of harvester or for how long and in what context do you want to hand harvest a crop? Yeah. And when it comes to investing in something that does take such a long time to give a return on, relatively speaking, especially in contrast to annual cropping systems, how are you guys helping farmers to overcome, overcome the initial investment costs and the period that it takes for those trees to begin to produce with something that can generate cash in a shorter term? 
Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question. So I think there's the, there's the fundament, fundamental question of how do we have access to capital to make the perennial system happen? Um, and that I think we mostly reviewed, or I'll, I'll dive, into a little, uh, dive into it a little bit more. Um, two ways to look at it, equity or debt financing. Uh, debt financing, pretty simple, get a mortgage for your trees, down payment, and then annual payment on, on those tree crops. Um, the catch is that if you say default or want to exit a mortgage on a house, then the house itself is collateral. And with equity financing trees, the way that's going to start is the tree crops themselves are collateral. So if someone wanted an exit from their debt finance system, then a third party entity could come on and say, manage a, um, a chestnut system in year five or year six. Yeah. And, uh, so I think the, the second part of that question is how do we generate in the short term before the yields come online, um, say of, of a long-term crop? And alley cropping and uh, pasture are really great ways to do that, uh, depending on which species is, is in the pasture, whether that's larger livestock or poultry. Uh, alley cropping, just to describe that for the listeners, is, I'll, I'll give an example, is say widely spaced rows of timber trees pruned up really high to get the, to let the light in with really anything that's an annual crop grown in between that could be wheat uh, with a combine driving next to rows of trees that works better in some climates than others. Uh, the farther south you go, the better, better that's going to work uh, or uh, farther closer to the equator um, rather than farther south. Why is that? And, oh, just um, you have more light, more light hours. Um, and you, you want to have a, uh, so light and then growing degree days. So you, you have this short window in say Canada where you don't want shade. Um, there's, what's, what's the word? Where uh, like a, a wheat kernel starts filling um the the flower it's um i'll think i'll maybe i'll think of the word in a second it's okay i don't um, remember it either <laughs> in uh we'll, we'll get to it but basically you have to have enough light when the grain crops are starting out or else you don't really get any yield right uh, and if you say have enough warmth in a mediterranean climate and enough light before the trees have leafed out then you can have winter wheat underneath a tree canopy um in, in the off season, in the trees off season. So a bit of a tangent, but um, vegetables is, an, is another option specifically between shorter trees. Um, we find that across, we'll say actually we'll say mostly in humid climates where agroforestry is, I, I don't wanna say more applicable, but more common um, below ground water and nutrient competition isn't nearly as big of a concern as the competition for light. So you really want to sync the overstory with the understory in regard to when you need light for both crops or when you don't okay. want light, don't want heat, don't want that uh, beating 90 degree sun uh, on black Angus cattle. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I know one of the examples that people often point to for especially grain cropping in between timber rows is the one I believe that you have the picture from of the farm in France that is pro probably the most referenced image to having this work where the combine is working through what look like poplars I could be wrong yes yeah th those are poplars at resting Claire in southern France and that and when you say when you describe agroforestry verbally uh some people it, it's it, it doesn't it doesn't click but then you pull up the photo and they say yeah. oh I didn't know you could do that yeah, uh, yeah. it's so, powerful that way. Yep. It's just, it's just simple. You have this really clear image of trees and a red tractor harvesting wheat. Right. And then how they're not in conflict because there is still often a perception that trees and other types of cropping cannot coexist, that it removes the access for bigger machinery or that it has to go into some sort of backyard, hyper diverse permaculture sort of situation for it to work. Whereas this is very widely applicable when it's correctly configured to climate, to economies, to different cropping systems. And I'm wondering where you started to see as you've been implementing projects and designing them, where have you found 
some of the configurations that have been most successful and have any of them actually started to reach their break-even stage or really start to produce yet? Yeah, so we started planting in 2018. So we're in, we're in year four and, and trees grow pretty slowly Okay. Yeah. Um, in, in the cold climate. So we're, we're just starting to see black currant yields. So short shrub, mechanically harvested berries. You can grow anything you want in between. Uh, livestock don't generally like the taste. Deer don't eat them. So you, mm-hmm. don't need, you don't need a deer fence. Um, a great combination with anything you want to grow in between, uh, as long as you don't need to. So when the harvester comes through in July or August, you want to have definitely room for them. Um, that's true of any short mechanically harvested shrubs. So you can have pass caps into Saskatoon service berry, into black currants, into aronia, and maybe, maybe blueberry if you really want to integrate uh, you can use the same harvester for a whole bunch of different types of purple berries. Uh, that's one good combination, especially the farther north you go. Uh, so you sure. see in Canada a lot of hascap or honeyberry. It's a Lanicerasu cerula. Um, you, you see a lot of that, and then Amelanthus alnifolia production. That Saskatoon service berry. Those those small um, early bearing purple berries that work really well in cold climates. So there's that one. And then the farther south you go, the, the, the better a fit there is for silvopasture, which is largely, I want to say, as scalable as beef is, at least in uh, humid climates. So tree, uh, places where there's enough rainfall for trees or enough access to irrigation. Uh, if you want to have large ponds, dams, lakes high in the landscape, and then use that water to um, to grow trees and and livestock. So the the farther south you go, the more hot days you're going to have, and then the greater the benefit the shade is to the livestock. So some place like Kentucky or Georgia, that's really the sweet spot because uh, you have more hot days versus in we'll say Vermont or northern or excuse me southern Quebec, you might only have ten hot days per year where um, the cattle would really benefit from access to tree shade. Um, where so that, that's really just in in terms of econ, of economics for livestock, in in terms of shade. Um, you also want to look at the returns on short rotation timber. Is a really good um, second second uh, species for cattle like black locust or hybrid poplar uh, for hardwood, and then uh, a normal say commodity softwood. Uh, especially because they're deciduous and will let the light in for the grass to grow in the off season. Uh, third one, one, I'll give one more combination or two more, uh, chestnuts, uh, were, uh, in the midst of, of really full steam ahead, scaling those up recently planted half of what will be the largest chestnut farm, largest contiguous chestnut farm in North America that that's in Kentucky. Uh, so chestnuts and cattle will eventually work out. Uh, and then in the meantime, chestnuts, when they're short trees uh, and grain in between. And then lastly, uh, cattle and woody browse. So you have these hedges of whether that's leucina or mulberry or willow, where the cattle will actually come in and eat the trees in addition to eating the grass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these, these configurations are fascinating to me because I know how much research goes into the back end of figuring out where that sweet spot between the diversity that's needed for the resilience for the business and for the ecology meets with the necessity of simplification for efficiency and for being able to mechanize things like this. Where have been some of the difficult areas of squaring that circle uh, in, the, in the balance of those factors? Yeah. Yeah. The theme is increase ecological complexity while keeping management simple. And you, you, you can do it. Um, you, you just have to plan for it. Uh, whether that's understanding that for a certain number of years before the trees are above browse height, then you have to have ground that you're going to hay between instead of, instead of introducing livestock and how that fits into your grazing rotation and things like um, how do you need to manage irrigation uh, of tree crops in relation to everything else that's in your system. You don't, you don't want um, large machinery chopping up a, a, an above ground irrigation line. So you have to plan for all that. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 really just a question of of long term planning and making sure those most important and critical activities that occur throughout the year are in concert rather than in conflict uh, between all of the different systems. And when we're talking about these hardy perennial systems, they definitely don't need the type of inputs and the intensity of pest management that annual crops do. At least very few of them do, especially if they're planted within the correct context of their area, their climate and such. That being said, you do still need some, especially if you're trying to get a healthy yield out of these. Can you talk about some of the maintenance, but also some of the uh, establishment inputs that you've found that are really helpful and make a real difference in the survival, especially in the first couple of years of the tree? Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll go from maintenance right, right into establishment. Um, so maintenance for fruit trees is really the most intensive, whether that's organic or conventional, you're going to have going to have an air blast sprayer that's going through um, controlling for pests and then foliar feeding a whole different assortment of, um, of inputs. And you want to make sure that say the track of the air blast sprayer isn't interfering with a crop in between those rows of trees. Um, and at the same time, isn't say compromising what is being uh, sprayed on a crop in between the apple trees um, at, at, at any given time. So that management, yeah, def definitely have to take that in into consideration, that overlap between the two crops. With installation, um, honestly, what we're moving towards uh, for all of the crops, given to different extents, is extremely well-prepared soil. Uh, you, you, can you can go into pasture, you can go into cropland and plant a tree, but to increase survivorship, to increase uh, growth rate of those trees, say with a, a high value horticulturally intensive fruit crop, you almost want to prepare weed-free veg beds, uh, whether that's conventional organic with tillage, mulch, etc. Um, with timber trees at establishment, uh, you, you, you do have species that will compete with grass, but eliminating that grass competition is, is really vital. Um, so you want to ideally eliminate that, that, um, that herbaceous layer, at least for a few seasons. And then when there is livestock, or I'll say livestock, but animal pressure from deer or from hogs, uh, you want to either have a deer fence or a hog fence and then tree tubes. So it looks like six foot tall plastic straws around each tree and that, that protects the trees from both uh, large wild animals and then rodents as well. Okay, and so do you go in and actually put any amendments in the soil as well? Have those worked out financially or is it sufficient to simply prep the, the beds as if like the, you said they were veg beds? Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. So a certain amount of compost for the horticulturally intensive crops. Um, you wanna add in things like gypsum, bone meal, green sand, whatever you need based on your soil test. Um, and so you wanna increase drainage. You'd say you have hard pen, you might need to, in, in addition to using a subsoil or a keyline plow to mechanically open up some, some space for the roots is using things like rye and Sudan grass to send cover crops to send roots farther down and create soil structure and drainage. So that, that's really important. Um, and then things like compost tea, um, soluble mycorrhizae, liquid kelp, uh, whether that's in a root dip at the begin at to, so, to soak the trees in before you plant them or applied via either fertigation or sprays later on to activate that soil biology is really key. And have you looked as well into what stage of development the tree is most likely to survive in as per how long it takes to actually mature? Because obviously planting seeds can often be the best way for them to establish their roots and acclimate to the soil they're being put in, but you're greatly increasing the amount of time that is needed for them to mature. Or in many cases, especially with those horticultural cultivars you're talking about, you would then have to go in and graft onto them so that that's not really feasible in a large scale. Is there an age of development where this really works out? 
Yeah, so it's, it's a good question. And the, the farther south you go, the more frequently you see folks establishing trees from seed, whether that's, um, I, I see it a lot in, in centropic farming where someone will just plant right. a seed and have a 10 foot tall tree uh, in a year. And that's, that's definitely less common in cold climates. The farthest north I've heard of a commercial producer putting tree seeds in the ground is with, with pecans where they'll put native pecans as rootstock uh, down. So native pecan seed, because you really want that tap root to go down and find the water and then graft onto it with selected varieties later. Um, I've heard of some folks putting chestnuts on the ground and just selecting the, the best one that comes up and you can do that. Uh, but I'd say there's a whole lot more success and certainty with planting either bare root or part of potted trees. When it comes to planting one of these enterprises, the scale is important for the profitability, undoubtedly. And at a certain scale, you start to reduce the amount of overhead costs and you also enter into different markets as well. Where are you really targeting this software and the types of designs that you are putting together for? And is it feasible when you get below a certain land size? Yeah, so it's a really good question. I think there are two things to touch on there. The first is CapEx sensitivity, which to de-jargonify that, it's at what acreage or number of trees should you buy a certain implement for a tractor or a, a, basically a piece of metal? How, how, how much metal do you need and at, at what scale? Even uh, processing equipment at a certain point. Mm -hmm, processing equipment and how does that uh, how do you amortize that? How do you depreciate it relative to production? And in what year, given your yield, do you really actually need to buy it? Uh, that really pushes into your assumptions on how much you're going to sell retail and how much time that's going to take you combined with what you want to, I don't want to say liquidate, but have a quicker, more assured market uh, in terms of selling wholesale for a certain crop. Yeah. Where have you found, like, are there advantages to certain types of crops being sold directly to consumers and others where there's an advantage to entering into the commodity market? Yeah, so spending enough time to capture margin via retail sales is consistently the highest return per unit time in a system. Um, the catch is there if you is that if you have perishable product product and you need to turn it into something shelf stable that can be a challenge. So say with fruit, um, whether that's turning it into frozen berries or juice or um, prepping it for sales later, uh, value added products is is a great way to capture margin. Um, but you're doing so many things at once in the same season that you really need to have uh, the ability to turn those processes on and off. Um, Conversely, uh, if say with, with berries, if you're selling to an, an alcohol maker, that's that's usually one of the ways to sell a quality product to a more discerning buyer uh, and and achieve um, a better price. The so the catch with a lot of these new crops, the the pre commodity crops, at least in the United States, like chestnuts and black currants, black currants specifically, is that there's really no price floor, uh, and what that means is that it's very difficult to just go somewhere and sell thousands of pounds of them because there's, there's no commodity market that they can go right into. So you honestly have to market um, and have to take the time to find a buyer, find backup buyers, and really assure that you can um, reap the benefits of something that you've put a whole lot of years into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I would imagine too that as you get into the processing of these you start to look at bigger investments into cold storage, into uh, transport, which becomes crucial if it's only good, if it's only shelf stable for a short amount of time, or the equipment or the kitchen equipment to process it on site and get it to a point where it's stable and you're under less of a time crunch. What sort of business models have you looked into for these? Yeah, so... <sighs> something that comes up a whole lot is the the crunch time of when 
everyone needs a commercial kitchen, everyone needs a certain implement. So it is available to rent, but you really have to plan ahead to make that work. Um, juicing infrastructure is huge, bottling infrastructure. Um, right now, with I'll go into chestnuts and then into timber. Um, with chestnuts, there still is a large market for retail and wholesale and everything in between for fresh nuts. Uh, we probably, this is a bit back of the napkin, but have at least 5,000 acres of planting to go um, without latent demand kicking in um, to just satisfy um, fresh nut demand. And then we'll say 10x that to 50,000 acres. That's the point where the, the way people consume chestnuts would maybe turn into a chestnut flour or pancake mix or something like that. So um, the more acreage you have, at least in, in the US, the um, more you're gonna have to process things into a more consumable product as opposed to just a, a fresh whole food. With timber, um, there are always buyers for logs. But I, th I think Darren said once that when you're selling logs, you're really just exporting carbon from your property. And it's astounding how folks will just kind of say, you know what, I'm just going to cut down these trees. Logger gives them a certain amount of money. It's usually um, not nearly what they could make if they sold the, the um, sawn timber. And a really good way to do that is to have either a contracted portable sawmill come in or own your own sawmill. Well, that scales down pretty well. Um, and depending on the species, you can, it, it's honestly, it's the difference between uh, a really far in the red negative return from selling logs to um, above a 10% IRR for selling sawn lumber. Um, and you say you have 15, 20 years to market it. So right. uh, create, yeah, creating those relationships with buyers before you have, um, uh, harvested, harvested logs is, is absolutely essential. Let's look into timber a little bit more because this is one of the areas that I know very little about. <laughs> and I'm wondering where the assessments into the fast growing, but usually much lower value timber work out with the slower maturing, but higher value ones and how you, you calculate that out to make a decision, what's going to work for you. Yeah, it's a good question. So I think it was on the regenerative agroforestry podcast, Dimitri recently interviewed someone who was, uh, was it Francisco or it was, I think it was in Italy. Um, I, don't, I don't think it was Francisco. I think Francisco's in Portugal. Um, yeah. <laughs> this I, name is escaping me, but it was polycyclic forestry, which I thought was a great name, uh, which is the combination of those long-term hardwoods with the short-term faster growing early successional species. Uh, interplanting them. Yep, interplanting them. And I think you can do that. Um, I think row by row would be better than AB or ABC, ABC planting in row. Um, what that might look like, not might look like, what that has looked like in cold climates is there, there's actually a, a guy named Brett Chedzoy. He's in Watkins Glen, New York. He's a Cornell Cooperative Extension forester and a livestock producer. So he has black locust, black walnut, silvo pasture with a whole bunch of other species as well. But those are the main trees that, that he has. Uh, the locust is a fast growing early successional species. The walnut is a longer term hardwood. And basically you thin the locust out and then the walnut takes over the, um, over the overstory. Now locust, uh, it grows back, it coppices. So you can kind of cut it once and then cut it again 15 years later from the same shoot same stump, same tree. Um, other species, uh, hybrid poplar is a big one. There's, there's a lot less, I don't know if there's less demand. What, what I'll say is that given the vast natural regeneration and planted conifer forests of places like Oregon and Maine and in, into Canada, the U.S. has a, a huge supply of dimensional lumber, of standard wood that you'd get at a big box store. And in comparison to Europe, which is, has much less natural forest, um, it, it makes less sense to grow that, we'll say, entry-level wood in plantation in the U.S. 
there are exceptions to that if you mill it yourself and you're creating um, a retail product. But if you're looking at, say, selling hybrid poplar or selling pine, um, then see, maybe if you're thinning your windbreak, it, it, it's worthwhile, but it, it, you're, um, you're not going to have positive IRRs returns from that, at least with current lumber prices. Okay, so that's fascinating to hear about that type of configuration within lumber. And much like you've been touching on through all of the different configurations we've been talking about, the access to market is really what's going to determine the profitability over any period of time. And I'm wondering how not only do you look at the different types of markets that are available to access, but in some, in some cases, especially if it's more of a niche product, you're looking at having to actually create a market for it. What does that look like? Yeah, so it, it starts with, it, it's really, it's, a, it's the classic market creation uh, initiative, hustle, whatever you want to call it, where you have to go out, find buyers, find um, where what you're producing creates value for someone else kind of derive what they're willing, willing to pay for a certain um, amount of value add relative to say what a commodity market might be willing to pay. Uh, and then compare that with what it costs you to produce it. So it's, it's different buyers have different preferences, especially with new products. So uh, like with fruit uh, breweries, wineries are great places to start. Um, and then yeah, the options are kind of infinite with wood, whether you want to make, make furniture if you're a carpenter or um, sell lumber. Yeah, that's, uh, there, there are a whole lot of uh, combinations and permutations there. And given that a lot of these configurations of enterprises that you're talking about uh, are pretty new, even in the agroforestry space, the ones that have existed tended to be much more monoculture derived, and it's still a small percentage of agriculture, especially in the United States, but also through a lot of the world. Have you identified some niches in the market where the technology just hasn't gotten good enough or there need to be some innovations to unlock the potential of certain configurations or plantings? Yeah, I would say that the genetic feedback loop with tree breeding is really slow. So with chestnuts, the one of the larger, I'd say two of the larger orchards in the US were planted in the 70s and the 80s into the 90s. And if you planted seeds from those trees, they that those genetics would be from the trees that were planted in the 50s. So you have these long cycles. So the University of Missouri uh, nut breeding initiative is, is doing great things on that front. Timber breeding is really similar. Um, breeding say locust uh, and selecting for it to be fast growing straight looks like a flagpole instead of looking like a snake yeah yeah and <laughs> i'm looking at these things right now too black locust is one of the things that grows most in the property that i'm moving to and uh, i've also been in touch with forestry nurseries around here that do have improved varieties of everything from pine nuts to walnut for various you know, whether you're looking for, for fruit, whether you're looking for timber, and the upfront cost of those improved varieties is significantly different. And that's also somewhat of uh, an impediment to jumping right in and investing in something like that. Is it, do you think, feasible to try and go with a lower cost and, you know, maybe just assuming that a lower percentage of what you're planting is going to get you the highest value, especially in the case of timber, right? Yeah. Or when it comes to fruiting, these ones are going to be, you know, a little bit lower, but it's counteracted by the lower price for initial investment. How have you, have you seen that work out? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, with timber, especially, you can buy these conservation grade seedlings for very little money. And then, as you said, the, the improved stuff is more expensive. What folks will do is just plant more of the conservation grade species and then thin them out. So instead of at 12 by 20 foot spacing, you might have them at 20 by three or six foot spacing, and then have a certain percentage that you assume that you're just gonna take the loppers or the chainsaw and cut them out. Uh, and then say thin your fence posts, thin your small diameter round wood. And then before 
um, not before, but then say at year 20, you have saw logs. So that's one way to do it. Or you can just plant all of the improved stuff, but the availability of the improved timber species is, is harder to access. It's possible, but um, yeah, as a, as a smaller producer, there, there are large forestry corporations, companies that take um, significant amounts of capital and time to get the genetics right before they plant large plantations. Sure, sure. Now you've really got your finger on the pulse of this industry and the way that it's advancing. I know you're talking about going out to another conference in Sardinia in this upcoming year. And yeah. Europe has really been on the forefront of this for a long time because there's so much agroforestry traditions in the history of this continent. I'm wondering where you're seeing some of the most exciting innovations in this area come up that are showing promise and that you advise other people to keep an eye on as well. That's, that's a fun question. Um, I think what's most exciting, at least visually and ecologically, is are the intensive silvopasture systems of South America. Mm. So you know how fast a, tr a tropical forest grows, right? Yeah. It just takes over. And especially the faster growing species do that. So you have these folks in Colombia, Paraguay, um, I don't know about Venezuela, but a whole lot of, of, of system in Mexico, um, Colombia, there's a professor named Enrique Murguitio who has pioneered a lot of this with a, a, a number of other folks where you have say cattle under shade of timber trees uh, to get that, that shade value. And then you have the grass below and then you have these fast growing shrubs that they eat as well, like Tetonia diversifolia, which is also called Mexican sunflower. I think it's diversifolia. There are a bunch of Tetonia varieties. It's a perennial sunflower. Then you have um, Leucaena leucocephala, which is, um, it's, I don't think it has a name in English. People just, no, people just call it Leucina. Uh, that's big in Queensland and Northern Australia as well. So you're, basically having this cattle system where you're converting the enthusiasm of an early successional tropical forest into beef. And in terms of uh, animal protein per ton of carbon sequestered, I think that's extremely exciting. And I, I would very much like to see that scaled up. Very cool. Yeah, I was going to uh, like ask some questions about the conversion with tree hay as that's becoming more and more widely known. I've, I've spoken to growers even in Scotland who are specifically growing trees as a supplemental feed for livestock, but it just makes sense to have the entire thing integrated pasture, uh, shade, biodiversity, supplemental feed for, for the cattle. And then of course, in these areas where the, the forest grows so quickly, it just seems like a no brainer. Yeah, it's definitely easier the, far, the further south you go. You see um, dairies that are really reliant uh, in a good way on mulberry in Costa Rica. It's a big one. Um, you see tree hay with willow and other species. Uh, it's in New Zealand. Um, and then if, if you want a YouTube search, I think it's beef up your profitability with legumes. It's a video from Australia where great, great drone shots, great financial information on Lucina in their pastures out there. Okay. The, the, the tree roots go way deeper than the grass roots. So during periods of drought, you have green, uh, dry, not dry matter, but dry matter equivalent for the cattle to eat. Right. Yeah, it's the same reason why we're looking into mulberries around here because of the drought resilience of that tree and just how much foliage it puts out. Man, this is all fascinating stuff. We really got into a lot. <laughs> I want to give one more question before we go to the contact information. What advice yeah. would you give to someone who is considering maybe starting or designing an agroforestry enterprise? Where should they start and how should they inform themselves? <laughs> they, should, uh, they should start with overyield. Uh, no. <laughs> Perfect. No, it, it. It, 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 it takes a lot of legwork to learn about these systems. Um, the agrarian's workplace is a great place to go. Um, there, it's, there, it's a whole combination of new domains. You want to have a base knowledge of woody perennials, um, finance, uh, agronomy, 
to really get an understanding and an underpinning of, of how you're going to plan a system. Um, there are volumes and volumes of books, um, great content on the, on honestly on YouTube, on the internet, great PDFs. Um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely a journey. Um, and I think, yeah, go, going into contact info, if, if anyone wants to check out what we're, what we're up to, it's overyield.com. Uh, and there's, there's a video demo up there. Um, and, and if anyone wants to reach out, we're, we're on social media as well. Yeah, I really do highly recommend that to people. I was blown away when you guys gave us the, the overview of the platform and just how simplistic it makes the very difficult calculations that are involved with the complexity of these systems. You've done a fantastic job there, and I'm really interested in seeing how this continues to evolve. Well, look, Harry, thank you so much for taking time today. This is a really fun conversation. I look forward to being in touch more with you and your team in the upcoming seasons. Oliver, thank you so much. Thanks once again to Harry Green. I'll be posting all of the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now in the next episode in this series on tree planting and agroforestry, I'll be speaking with Allison Levy and Scott Serrano, the authors of the new book, Cold Hardy Fruit and Nut Trees. Now, if you've ever thought that you couldn't grow any serious variety of fruit, nuts, or berries because the climate where you live is too cold, well, then next week's episode will open up a whole new world of options for you. So be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.